Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the How to Become a Personal Trainer podcast. We're your host, Mike Vacanti. My name is Jordan Syatt, and in this episode, we go over part two of the 10 most common mistakes personal trainers make. Part two, enjoy. Hello, Jordan. What's going on, Michael? Not much. I feel really good from the 16-minute nap that I just took. That was impressive. I was wondering how long that was. Yeah. You you said you got right in a REM? I, I kind of always say that when I wake up feeling good from a nap. <laughs> to be honest, right I have no rem. idea. My understanding <laughs> of, of, of sleep physiology is that if you're deprived of rapid eye movement sleep, that as soon as you fall asleep, you, you immediately go into REM sleep. I don't know if I'm actually deprived of it. I've been sleeping pretty well recently. So. Did you set an alarm or was it the phone going off that woke you? No, I woke up. I'll, if I take a midday nap, it'll be between 15 and 20 minutes and then I'll wake back up. You just naturally wake up after 15 to 20 minutes? In that 15 to 20 minute range. That's yeah. crazy to me. And, and I feel very refreshed. Without any alarm, you'll just naturally get up after 15 minutes. I usually, I mean, I had you in, in Ben's room here. In the, I wasn't making noise though. I was no, just no, no, chilling. But, I mean, I wasn't going to sleep for five hours because we had to podcast. If I had something going on, I would have set an alarm, but you were my alarm. That's, that's one of the differences between you and me. I could, if I take an afternoon nap, it's going for at least two hours. There's, there's no way. If I fall asleep, I'm not getting up 15 minutes later. That's just not happening. Have you ever set an alarm for 15 to 20 minutes? Yeah. And I've done it. Like when Gary needed a shake or something, or like if I, for whatever reason, if I had to by requirement, but wake up, for if something. I'm on my own and I'm like, yeah, I'll just take a 15 minute, 20 minute nap. And I set an alarm, I'll wake up and I'll be like, yeah, right. And go back to bed. It's if I'm going to take a nap, it's going to be like a two hour nap. It, it sounds like you don't nap frequently though. Is that I don't true? ever nap. So the times when you would have wanted a nap, I was probably exhausted. I would imagine you were quite sleep deprived. Yeah. I'm not a napper. Yeah. I'm more of a, let's try and get as much sleep as I can at night. <laughs> While you're asleep. Yeah. We should, we should have a podcast where we talk about the history of sleep because polyphasic sleep cycles mm. or sleeping multiple times within a 24 hour window have been the norm in certain cultures at certain times in human history. I'd we should to, do an I'd experiment on that. A little bit. We should try that. You want to be the guinea pig? You don't want. You don't want to. Uh, the, the polyphasic sleeps the the non traditional sleep schedule that would make the most sense to me would be something like six hours at night and ninety minutes in the afternoon. I could do that, or or potentially like a seven to seven and a half at night and a twenty minute power nap during the day. But there's on the other extreme, there are. Uh, I think it was. Leonardo da Vinci, who slept, I don't think he did this his whole life, but I know he did this for at least a number of years if it was da Vinci, but he slept for 20 minutes every four hours. Sounds awful. For like years straight. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> Why would anyone do that? Uh, sounds like everything is... For, for, for maximum waking hours in life. Just sounds like... His social life really sucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, my my previous and and sometimes current web developer, a, a buddy, a guy who I actually coached, really good dude by the name of John, who uh, probably three or four years ago, he gave it a shot. So every four hours, he would sleep for 20 minutes. And I remember he would be like at his kid's friend's birthday party <laughs> and he would have to go out into the car because his nap time hit and take a 20-minute nap, <laughs> go back into the party. And, you know, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to me because you don't get any deep sleep. Like all of the the good things, growth hormone production, uh, just the, the good feeling of a full night's sleep. But yeah, I think what does that end up being? So that six mini naps in a 24 hour window of 20 minutes each you're sleeping two hours per 24 hours that's terrible it just sounds terrible to me in every aspect of it i think for the one time it was appealing to me was probably my my fourth year maybe my fifth year my master's year of college when i 
on my mind was maximal productivity mm. for life. Yep. Like thinking, what can I be doing so that I don't have to become an accountant? Mm -hmm. And the thought of having 20 hours a day or 22 hours a day of getting things done was was really attractive from the from the mentality of like getting ahead right. in life. Hustling, working, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Um the fact that almost no one does it in life and those who do don't do it for very long, I think shows that we won't experiment with that one. We could try it. We could do like a whole YouTube video series on this, like different sleep tests, fasting tests. We could do all that stuff. I'm definitely, it would have to be at a time where I didn't care about my training or my health. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be at a time where I really didn't care about my health at all. <laughs> I just didn't care about myself. I think those times of my life were definitely past not caring as much about my health. Right now it's like always going forward. I'm constantly reminded of my health. Right. <laughs> which, which enhances everything else. Of course. Yeah. And it puts things in perspective too, where it's like, how worth it is it to go this hard on my business if it's going to sacrifice my health type of a thing, right? Absolutely. Whereas in previous years, that would be like business first, first. And even before that, it was powerlifting first, that first. And then before that, it was like whatever it is. It's like, but mm -hmm. now going forward, I think part of getting older is focusing on on your health is one of the major realizations people for. have. Yeah. Definitely. And not just your current health. Like even if there isn't a a negative consequence in the short run, right? To like, let's use working too much as an example. Even if maybe the the negative health impact is, you know, your body composition's a bit worse, you feel a bit worse, maybe your blood markers are a bit worse, but you're still overall a quote unquote healthy person. Mm -hmm. Who knows what kind of long-term impact um, like periods of, of too much work, too much stress, not enough sleep can have on our longevity. Including also mental health, emotional health aspects as well. Absolutely. Spending more time with your family, getting outside more, taking your shoes off, hiking, mm -hmm. getting good weather, getting more sun, just all that type of stuff. You're speaking my language right now. <laughs> <laughs> In this concrete jungle. That neck training you, you and i are in fighting <laughs> outdoors <laughs> yeah it sounds incredible wrestling i can't remember the last time my bare feet were on some some grass which is sad i feel like it was when you were in, in florida i know that's when mine was when was that january? months ago february january yeah when the weather up here was awful went for a few days to florida yeah just to get out of the concrete jungle yeah that is i think that and eventually just wanting to raise kids and not have kids grow up in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the two main reasons that I will at some point not be in the city. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. You want to talk about this list? Part part two? Well, we already hit the first one. Polyphasic sleep. You should be having your clients... <laughs> On the six naps a day. No, that's, that's a poor joke. Let's review our first five, uh, our first five items from the list. And I mean, in part one, we're talking about the ten most common coaching mistakes that Jordan and I came up with in a little brainstorming session. They might not be the actual top ten, but they're ten that are prevalent and that we feel like discussing and and might be. Uh, kind of underrated or under discussed right now. The first five were much more formal and much more correct. Mm -hmm. These next five, uh, maybe, well, we'll see. I think they're a little bit more bro-y or a little more um, opinionated, but let's dive in. So <laughs> we'll let you be the judge of that. The, the first five that we already covered were uh, not enough training intensity slash too much Emphasis on functional training. Uh, number two, not appropriate, not utilizing rest times appropriately. Number three, too much cardio to make up for bad diet. Number four, tied into number two, but basically letting the client talk too much mm -hmm. and dictate the pace of the workout. And number five was starting clients with a conventional diet, a, a conventional <laughs> deadlift rather than a sumo deadlift. 
And so now starting our next five, number six is not programming any, not programming direct abs and specifically flexion-based abdominal movements uh, for the purpose of aesthetics. You want to take the lead on this one? I'll take the lead on ab training because I, I fell victim to it as much as anybody. Um, it is widely, it's a widely held belief, especially in the evidence-based fitness community that the way to get quote unquote abs is to dial in on your nutrition, get down to X percent body fat and your abs will show through training your abs. I mean, many right now go so far as to say that training your abs has no effect on the aesthetics of your abs, uh, which, which is actually mostly true. Nutrition is the most important thing for seeing abs. Um, coupled with that would be the, the argument that you get sufficient abdominal engagement from heavy compound movements, squat, deadlift, chin up, overhead press, like these moves are giving you enough ab work. Uh, whereas if you really want to do everything you can to maximize uh, development of abs, and whether that's because you want to have a six pack or whether that's it, it is mainly for aesthetics. Programming direct ab training absolutely makes sense. And it's it's one of those things where the pendulum swings back and forth too far. It's swung back and forth too far on, you know, six to eight small meals a day and then swung all the way to, no, you can just eat one meal a day. And the right answer is more in the middle. Um, I feel like, and that's why I preface this by saying this is more opinion, a little bit more bro-y, but I feel like a coach that a lot, or a, a mistake that a lot of coaches make is not programming any direct abdominal work. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I fell into this trap as well, especially the idea that a lot of people, and I used to say it too, is that the abs are not designed to do flexion-based movements. Apparently, like a lot of the this evidence-based community will say that abs are designed to resist movement, to resist extension, to resist flexion, uh, which is why they come up with a lot of these anti-extension, anti-flexion exercises, anti-rotation exercises, and like planks, single leg planks, and they're phenomenal exercises, and they're great ways to strengthen the abs. They're phenomenal. I think like anything in life, just going so far to one side saying you should never do any flexion-based ab exercises is a, is a very short-sighted, narrow-minded way to look at things. One of the first ones that come to mind for me is the uh, the reverse crunch. I think the reverse crunch is, is without question one of the single best core exercises, not just for aesthetics, not just from the perspective of you are actually strength, tra you're training the abdominal muscles in a way that they're going to then grow and get bigger and more muscular and more aesthetic. But also from a postural perspective, I think one of the, the reverse crunch is one of the best exercises to correct anterior pelvic tilt, excessive anterior pelvic tilt. It can really help people who have lower back pain. Uh, I think for people just to say flexion-based ab exercises are always bad, usually their perception of flexion-based ab exercises are people doing flexion-based ab exercises wrong. So really what they're saying is it's not that flexion-based ab exercises ab exercises are bad. It's that doing them with bad technique in inappropriate volumes and intensities is bad, which is the same thing for literally any exercise in the history of ever. Any exercise done with inappropriate technique with too much volume, too much intensity is bad, Yeah, but oh, there's oh. appropriate ways to do it. And in addition to that, inappropriately uh, prioritized within a training session, yep. right? How, how many people can you think of who their fitness plan was uh, like significantly cut calories, um, go for a run every day and do 15 minutes of crunches after. Yeah. 15 minute abs. <laughs> <laughs> they do every, crunches, every bicycle day. crunches, Russian twists, like all that stuff. Yeah. Right. So it's not that we are saying, uh, it's not that we're ab, direct ab training is still a very small piece of an entire training program Correct. and is much less important than everything that you know to be important. 
getting stronger at compound movements. I was just talking with Alec today at Structure. He was asking because today was our neck and ab day uh-huh. in our overarching program, which is just like we're, we're training six days a week. We're doing pull, push, upper, lower as for our four main days. And then we have two days of neck and abs. Um, and we was talking to uh, this really great young coach named Alex at Structure Personal Fitness, best gym in New York. And uh, – and he was asking us about what day, what we were doing today. And, uh, and we said it was neck and abs day. And we were talking about how in a normal workout schedule, when we're not dealing with coronavirus and like where our schedules are packed and, uh, and we might only have 45 minutes, it can be hard to dedicate 10 minutes of that 45 minutes to solely abs. So I think if you're someone who can only train three days a week for 30 to 45 minutes per session, then dedicating 10 minutes of, of those 30 to 45 minutes solely to abs is probably not your best idea. But that's where you can use supersets to to do maybe a set of dumbbell bench press with a set of abs or whatever it is. And again, it also depends on your goals. If your goals are, if your goal doesn't revolve around increasing the muscle size of your abdominal musculature, then then you shouldn't be doing that stuff. You'd be better off with like a plank or a single leg plank or a reaching plank or a, uh, or a bear crawl, something of that nature that is more anti-extension, anti-flexion. But I think the discussion really boils down to do if you want to build more robust, more defined abdominals, and if you want to have the chance of having more visible abs at a higher body fat percentage, then you need to train them like a muscle that will grow. Mm-hmm. And isometric exercises are not the best exercises for muscle growth, right? Exactly. No one's going to build their bicep doing isometrics. No one's going to build their back doing isometrics. You're not going to build your abs using isometrics. You will build bigger ab muscles using both a concentric and an eccentric component. Mic drop. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Number seven. Uh, this is a very specific, would you call this a pet peeve? I don't even know what it is. Putting plates under someone's heels while squatting instead of actually working on mobility. This is a pet peeve, but it's also a serious issue that I see a lot of people doing. And I think, for example, I see a lot of coaches, I'll say there's nothing inherently wrong with putting plates underneath someone's heels uh, if you want them to squat. My issue is when someone a coach will do that, and then after the set of squats, they'll just talk to the client and just chit chat and do nothing instead of addressing the actual issue with why they can't squat in the first place. So if you're going to have a client squat with their heels slightly elevated because they can't do it properly otherwise, then you better make sure that you're supersetting that movement with some type of a mobility or stability drill that's mm-hmm. going to address their specific is- issue in regard to why they can't squat to depth whether it's ankle mobility, whether it's uh, a stability issue at the hips, whether it's a, an issue with their core stability, whatever it is, there, there's an issue here and there's a reason why you're putting their, you're elevating their heels. That heel elevation is just, it's, it's just a bandaid for the time being. Yeah. And unless you're working on actually addressing it and fixing it with programming with the, with the stuff you're programming, then what are you doing? Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. That shouldn't be your go-to for their entire training career. Especially if you're taking a two or three minute rest between sets of squats. Yeah, exactly. Use that time. Yep. Um, Is this not, and and this is me asking a genuine question, is that not the exact same thing as squat shoes? Yeah, it is. Which is, I will never take a gen pop client and have them get Olympic lifting shoes. Because it makes zero sense to me. Not to mention, I have a gen pop client coming in the gym. They have several pairs of shoes. They've spent at least $100 on these shoes. They're going to spend probably at least one to two minutes getting those shoes on. And then they're going to take another one to two minutes getting those shoes off to put on their other shoes. We're already about five minutes down just based on their shoes for the workout. It's like, I've only got 45 more minutes with you. Like, let's go. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have you use several different pairs of shoes during your workout, which is actually why I love the the New Balance Minimus that Eric Cressy always sends that he gives all to his interns and that he has a big deal with New Balance. And as you should, he crushes it. But I like more minimalist style shoes or barefoot. It's like just for me what I generally prefer. Or if I'm working with a power lifter or an Olympic lifter, sure, you can wear Converse or you can wear Olympic lifting shoes, whatever you want. But 
the vast majority of your clients are probably going to be gen pop. And if you're making them get $180 Adidas Addy powers, like what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Like it's ridiculous. So, and not to mention, even if some, I see cl- coaches doing this with clients with a goblet squat, putting two and a half pound, five pound weights underneath their heels. I'm like, what are you doing? Like one of the first things you can do is just take their stance out a little bit wider. Usually a lot of times people will do this because the coaches think that the heel, the toes and heels and feet have to be directly underneath the hips, directly underneath the shoulders and toes pointing straight forward. Very few people can do that and hit depth. It's like, take their feet out a little bit wider, turn their toes out and odds are you're not going to need the weights anyway. Correct. So for me, it's just like, I, I see too many coaches doing that because they saw on a YouTube video or an Instagram video, like, do you lack ankle mobility? Do this. And then they start doing it where it's like, just take their stance out an inch wider on each foot, turn the toes out slightly and you're fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are a couple of your favorite drills for uh, someone with outrageously bad, let's say ankle mobility? Uh, it's going to be hard to, this is the, I think the one weakness of a podcast, right? Explain where it's, you can't it. show it. I, yeah. There's one. So I have all these on my YouTube channel that I put up in like 2012, 2013. One of them is called a toe raised, uh, toe raised wall ankle mobility is I believe what I called it. Uh, basically where you go up against a wall, you put one foot in front of the other and you put you, you you're, put, you're facing the wall, you're facing the wall, yep, yep. hands against the wall, one f- your feet staggered stance and your front foot, you put the toes up on the wall while your heels on the ground and you just get your knee of that foot to touch the wall and you move back and forth. It gets a nice stretch on the calves mm-hmm. while you're also getting a little bit more ankle mobility too. And I like to go in, in three different directions. So with the knee, the first time the knee goes over the big toe, the second rep, the knee goes over the middle of the toes and then third rep, the, t- the knee goes over the pinky toe you just go in that order like big toe middle pinky big toe middle pinky just to get all directions beautiful anything else on the other thing i'll say on that is i think a lot of coaches and you go to a lot of certifications a lot of coaches at certifications who are running the certification will talk well they'll address mobility issues which as they should right and i think one of the best models here is the joint by joint approach um I believe that was popularized by Gray Cook from the FMS, which I really vastly support. The issue is a lot of coaches will, a lot of the people running certifications and on online, they'll show different ways to test ankle mobility specifically, not because most people struggle with ankle mobility, but because there are tests that look cool to other coaches who don't know better. Like, oh, that's how I can test for ankle mobility. I can count on one hand how many clients I've had who've actually had ankle mobility issues that prevented them from being able to squat. On less than five, and out of thousands of clients, most mobility issues are not coming from the ankle. Most mobility issues are really coming from the hips. They're coming from uh, the thoracic spine. Really, is I think the major culprit, especially nowadays. But the hips and thoracic spine are really the major mobility issues. Mm-hmm. Most people are not struggling with ankle mobility issues at all. And I, I think really one of the easiest ways to deal with it is through soft tissue work, whether it's a lacrosse ball, acumobility ball, or something, if they actually have it. But keep that in mind. Like one hand I can count on the number of people I've, I've met who actually have legitimate ankle mobility issues preventing them from squatting. Got it. So between their sets of squats, then they're doing hip stuff. Yeah. Hip stuff, thoracic spine stuff. I mean, on a lot of the the things that present as a mobility issue are actually more of a stability issue. They're actually like a lack of core stability, lack of hip stability that like can really be worked on. But if you're having trouble with a back squat with mobility, the vast majority of times I've found it's either hip or thoracic spine mobility. Like that's really the major, two major ones. The mm-hmm. T-spine, I think, is the one that's most under-discussed. Flexion, extension. Yeah, people are Both. hunched over. They have terrible ability to extend and rotate in their upper back. And if you can't extend and rotate your upper back, especially extend, if you can't extend your upper back and you're slouched over, good luck getting deep in a squat. You're already starting hunched over. Yeah. So now you're expected to put a weight on your back and keep your chest up when you can't do that without weight on it. Get out of here. Let's just throw some fives under their heels and everything will be okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven is talking to your client like you're trying to impress other coaches. This this was your idea. I mean, I I obviously see it. I see it a lot in content creation, mm. which which isn't speaking to your client, but it's speaking to uh, people who are your potential clients, um, it it seems to be uh, an ego issue, right? Because when you're talking to someone, 
you want to speak in their language. You want mm-hmm. to speak in a way that they can understand and internalize and remember the concepts. You don't want to talk so that, uh, you know, your new coworker who may or may not be able to hear what you're saying will be impressed by your vast knowledge of whatever cert you took over the weekend. I just remember, <laughs> I'll never forget this. And I doubt this person listens to my podcast because we don't like each other. Shout out this person if they do. (laughs) (laughs) They might not even know I'm talking about them. But I remember one of the first gyms that I ever worked at, I'll never forget, this person would actively shout at their clients as they were squatting, which I think is an issue in and of itself. But they would shout at them, anterior pelvic tilt. No, posterior pelvic tilt. A little bit more anterior now. And they would go back and forth trying to find the perfect like tilt of the pelvis. And I'm like, this person has no idea what you're talking about. And they would do this in a class setting too. Not just one-on-one. They would do this in a class of like eight to 12 people. All right, I want everyone to show me an anterior pelvic tilt. I'm like, what are you doing? It, it, it's it's one of those. And they would always, and that wasn't even the only example they would use. Do you think it was driven by genuine excitement no. that they had just learned these absolutely new terms? Not. Okay. No, absolutely not. It, it's just, I know this person, it was not driven by that. It was what, driven was by- Was it a lack of like, like maybe some kind of uh, like social disorder, like on the spectrum of sorts? This person was definitely socially unacceptable in many ways. But <laughs> 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 I don't, I don't like this person at all. Really bad relationship with this person, but it was it was driven by wanting to impress people is really what Got it was. It. And clearly, I have a huge bias just based on me not liking this individual. <laughs> but I, I think that's normally what is the driving factor. Yeah. Mo- and I did the same thing. If you go read my articles on my website from 2011, 2012, 2013, you're going to see a very different author. Like the writing that I use is using words that are way bigger, way more scientific. I'm linking out to research articles that like no one's going to read unless they're in the industry that even just the subjects of what I would write about were clearly geared towards coaches as opposed to, uh, the people who actually need it. So, I mean, we all go through this, myself included. Um, I think it's very important to be aware if it, what I would say is most people generally speaking are very good at speaking to their person, their in-person clients. Most coaches are generally pretty good at understanding, okay, I need to break this down very simply. I'm going to try and use really easy to use, um, uh, whatever they're called. Um, what's the word? Cues, vocabulary. Cues, vocabulary, um, whatever it is. I'm going I'm to use very easy, easy to understand words and ideas. Um, concepts. Concepts. There's one word that it that made to stick. I forget what the word is. It's uh, analogies. analogies. Mm, mm. Good analogies for people to understand. But then when they go to write, whether it's or they go on a podcast, they get nervous and they they start to use bigger words because they're petrified of what other coaches are going to think of them, what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. So they start to use these big words that they were learned in their recent certification or from an article they wrote online. Or they'll go on Google to try and find a word that sounds more advanced than the words that they're going to use in general. And uh, what I encourage every coach to do is before you put out a piece of content or an article or whatever is just read through it. And if there's any single word that you don't use when you talk to someone in person, don't use it in writing. It's one of the simplest things. It's for example, one of my favorite words, and this is a little bit slightly off topic, but I see this all the time. When I see coaches online talking about nutrition and diet, one of the most common words that I see them use is consume. Like, when you're consuming food, did it like in the, for the diet that's best to consume? I'm like, have you ever used that word when you're talking to a client in person? Have you ever said, so what did you consume today? Never, ever. But they love to use that word in their writing because it sounds more advanced or higher level. I'm like, just say eat. <laughs> just say eat. That's it. That's all you need to say. So anytime you read through your own writing or editing or whatever it is, ask yourself if you would ever say that to someone out loud. And if it's the answer is no, then don't use it. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I use consume frequently in real life related to content. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Consuming content. Yep. Not, not calories though. How many calories did you consume today? <sighs> After that pint of ice cream or yeah. before? <laughs> you eat more ice cream than I've ever met. <laughs> I've eaten less ice cream in the last three to six months of my life than- uh, Since college? No, probably since birth. <laughs> Very little. I had that pint today, which will fit today. And 
I don't think I've had a, a non-Halo Top pint of ice cream in definitely weeks. Wow. Yeah. That's good. For the gut health? For the gut health and for just general energy levels. And and, uh, and your yeah. gut's been feeling good? Yeah. Yeah, it has. We'll, yeah. we'll save that for another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, it It's so common, and this is getting a little bit away from... And by the way, this is point number eight. We're talking about uh, talking to your client like you're trying to impress other coaches. Um, in content, I can just picture the the like very bitter, very angry, very self-righteous kind of in their own head personal trainer with, you know, 93 followers who – has 16 certifications in their bio and they're just so mad that other people have attention and aren't doing things exactly by the book, exactly to the T and, and thinking of, cause I think you do an extremely good job of talking to your potential client at their level. Um, not using, you know, isn't there a, like an X grade reading level that have you heard this? Like nothing you say should be above a fourth grade reading level if if you're trying to make content that's broad Got enough. Got it. Or, I I've always just said I want it to be so easy a six year old can understand it. Cool. I just always feel like that gets the point across because I never know how old fourth graders are, <laughs> and I always feel like I, this is actually a concern of mine when I eventually hopefully have kids and like they come back with their math homework. I know for a fact I'm not going to know how to do it. With like, and, and I'm like, man, fourth grade, they're probably you know, going to know more math than I do. Like, I don't, I don't think that's true. Fourth grade math, guarantee there's a long division in there. I right? think you sell yourself short. Don't uplift me right now, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> long division is definitely in fourth grade, right? You could relearn that I'm not method relearn in, <laughs> but I'm saying you could in a very short <laughs> amount of time if you wanted to. All I'm saying is I don't know how, uh, the intelligence of fourth graders. I can have a general idea of a six a six year old intelligence generally, but even then, who knows? I mean, we're getting smarter. I feel like the grades are getting smarter. Although I have heard that we're no longer doing teaching cursive to kids anymore in school. I heard cursive is off the table. I didn't know that, but that makes sense given the the increase in technology and decrease in written word. Yeah, and because you can always just use a different font if you want to sign your name in cursive, I guess. But I mean, there, a lot of it's on paper, so I'm still a little bit surprised they're not learning cursive. Also feel like if we're getting rid of cursive, we could get rid of long division on paper. We just all have calculators. Just teach them how to use a calculator. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a good conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really trying to steer us away from <laughs> I used to do this with substitute teachers all the time. Just ask a completely random <laughs> question. <laughs> I, be I believe that you would do that. That we, makes complete sense to me. We would spend as, see who could get the substitute teacher off topic. Or if we had a teacher that we knew, like Mr. Lipsky, eighth grade math, it was very easy to get Mr. Lipsky off topic. We would just ask any random question and he'd go off about it. I mean, if we're going to go into what uh, education curriculum should look like, uh, I have many more bones to pick than um, cursive. Right? Like, yeah, cursive doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, but mm -hmm. memorizing facts in general also doesn't seem like it makes a lot right. of sense when you're leaving out things like um, objective morality, mm. personal finance. Oh, yeah. Uh, like mental – let's say mental health, but like, and this is coming a little bit in schools, but meditation, like ability to control your emotions, basically mm -hmm. um, a, a drastic uptick in physical health, self-defense. Oh yeah. Uh, everything like, especially for young boys, like and, and a certain subset of young boys who need more activity than others, um, just more movement and more uh, physical exertion in general. So Yeah. My, Maybe we'll. Did I tell you my mom would always say it? My mom would always be, she would always say, young boys, they should, I forget 
if she would say like they should go like to oh my mom would always say young boys should get out of school at like second or third grade and like they should go volunteer she was like because young boys they have way too much energy and they can't pay attention and they're always running around and they call it like ADD and like I was diagnosed with ADD but it's really that just young boys and they need to get outside mm-hmm. and she'd always be like all the little girls, they can just sit there and pay attention. They're very well behaved and it's fine. And she was like, and then the young boys can come back when they're like in high school or 18 and start to pay attention again. (laughs) (laughs) And I would always get so mad, but I'm like, maybe she had a point. Like I just couldn't pay attention when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, we, we could solve that the natural way, or we could just, you know, boost up this trillion dollar drug industry and yeah. give 20 to 30 percent of the kids pills to take every single day because that makes a lot of sense for a seven-year-old oh my god yeah i know i know <laughs> the the last point that i was going to make was basically the type of person who's going to judge you for talking to your potential client or your client at their level isn't the kind of person that you want to impress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that person with 16 certs in their bio who's just like <laughs> like any comment they're leaving on any post is critical or negative or yeah. like tr- just trying to nitpick. You don't want their approval. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, let this be a, a good reminder just not only because it's most helpful for your client and, and also just because it's the right thing to do to not make that mistake. Correct. Did I go too far taking a shot at the drug industry? No. Okay. This is our podcast. I don't think we can go too far. (laughs) Uh, Number nine. So right now we have number six, not programming enough abs, flexion-based especially. Number seven, uh, putting plates under the heels rather than working on the actual issue. Number eight, talking to your client like you're trying to impress other coaches. And now number nine is you don't take your own advice. This is a big one. This is a big one. And we can attack this from so many different angles. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a particular angle you would like to start with? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the more common questions that I get from coaches and especially coaches who they say, I'm going to be your, they say, I'm going to be very honest with you. Like, I'm not happy with how my body looks. I'll say, you know, I'm technically, they'll be like, I'm technically overweight. Like I have a lot of knowledge. I'm a great coach. I I give my clients great advice and my clients get great results, but I'm very self-conscious with how I look. And I don't think other coaches will take me seriously. And I'm concerned about uh, getting more clients because why would they trust in me when they could go to someone else who looks more fit? Uh, And I think for me, one of the first things I, I, I used to have this debate when I was a, uh, when I was a competitive powerlifter, a very common debate that I used to have was, do you have to be strong in order to be a strength coach, mm-hmm. right? Which sort of goes like, do you have to be fit in order to be a fitness coach, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, w- the debate was always around, do you have to be strong to be a strength coach? And this is it when I was at the height of my powerlifting career, and I was like at the, I was setting world record strength levels, whatever it is, and. My opinion with that is very similar to what my opinion is now, which is there are some remarkable strength coaches who are not strong at all. There are some truly incredible strength coaches, sort of like, I don't believe, for example, Bill Belichick, and correct me if I'm wrong, if he was a phenomenal football player. Was he a phenomenal football player? I, I, I actually, I think he played in the end. I'm, I'm not sure of that. I thought he was a cornerback and I thought he played a little bit in the league. Got it. But not like anything crazy noteworthy type, but he still had experience. Yes. So the way I think of it is there, there are some really, truly remarkable strength coaches who were not ever world record strong, but they all were strong in terms of they all lifted. There was never a strength coach who didn't actually ever lift. There was Mm -hmm. never a strength coach who produced tremendous strength athletes who had never lifted before, who hadn't developed a a considerable amount of strength on their own. I think this is important to say because when you're coaching people in strength, it's not just about understanding technique. It's not just about understanding programming and periodization. You must understand the mindset you must understand the mental and emotional struggles people have that they're going through, not just in the gym, but also outside of the gym as a result of what they're spending their time doing. 
when they're walking up to a bar with four plates on either side and they're getting super anxious about blowing their spine out of their back and getting nervous, what do you say to them to help calm them down to get them ready? Only someone who's done that can really know what it will feel like and understand how to communicate with that athlete. So I think you don't have to be world record strong in order to be a great strength coach. And just because you are world record strong does not mean you will be a great strength coach. But having that experience improves your likelihood of actually being able to help more people with that. Same mm -hmm. thing going back to the original question, which is more of like fitness. And I always say, listen, you could be a tremendous coach and still be a significantly high body fat percentage. You can be yep. a, a remarkable coach and get your clients amazing results. My question is, is you're feeling insecure for a reason, right? It's like, let's address your insecurity. Why are you feeling insecure? And usually it's because they know they want to lose weight. They know they want to quote unquote, in their words, look the part. And it, with that in mind, it's like, I guarantee you will be a better coach when you also do the stuff you're helping your clients do, because you will not only learn the science of it, you'll not only learn the practical application, but you'll learn the mental and emotional side as well. It's impossible to understand the mental and emotional side if you don't go through it. Mm -hmm. Now, sort of, we'll use another example. There are tremendous doctors who help cure cancer who have never had cancer. And you don't need to have cancer in order to, in to help, like, help their clients get over cancer, right? But I guarantee you a doctor who's been through it before will better be able to relate to someone who's also going through it. And they might be able to have conversations with a patient in a way that a doctor who hasn't gone through it will, or if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. You don't have to have cancer in order to be a, a cancer doctor. Mm -hmm. You don't. But usually when you go through something and you experience it, you can relate to the people you're helping on a much deeper level, mm -hmm. which might help you be that much better. If that makes sense. Yep, it does. And and I wholeheartedly agree with that. That's a that's an excellent and probably the best reason why coaches should not make this mistake and should take their own advice. Mm -hmm. Um another reason, and to give a an example somewhat related, I believe it was it was on Joe Rogan's podcast. A year or two or multiple years back, he had George St. Pierre on, who's oh, yeah. one of the greats of all time in the UFC. Um, and for, for most sports, fighting being one of them, but for most sports, for athletics, uh, there is a, there's diminishing returns on being incredibly lean, right? Aesthetics and performance have a lot of overlap, but definitely not complete overlap. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't want the physique of someone who just won uh, a bodybuilding show or someone who is a fitness model. Like even though that might be quote unquote, the, the most aesthetically appealing physique, that is not the most optimal physique for fighting. Mm -hmm. But GSP, George St. Pierre looks remarkable like yep. he has a remarkable physique and i think it was on rogan when he said um like joe asked him about it and he was basically like marketing like sells tickets yeah. or something along yeah, those I remember lines that. yeah and uh and th the same goes for being a personal trainer there are and and not necessarily saying that you need to be a certain amount of leanness but looking the part in general, whether that means having a little bit of muscle, uh, being a, a healthy weight, having good proportions, whatever it is, there are some potential clients who that's like, they can't see past mm -hmm. your physique. And, and for those people, um, I don't even want to put a percentage on it, but what you are doing is you're, by going through what Jordan just talked about, not only will you learn all of those things by by going through the process of getting in shape, but you will also uh, make your own life easier by having better marketing. I think it's a great way to put it. It's, and I, I love how George St. Pierre said that. I remember that where he's like, listen, people are going to want to watch me fight more if I look like a, he didn't say this, but like look like a gladiator. Yeah. Right? Where it's like, and you see people say this, like they, a lot of coaches get mad. Coaches will be like, oh. Yeah, they're big and shredded and ripped and strong, but they don't know anything and they're getting all these clients. It's and, like and the and the coach is right, like 100% right. Yeah. You don't have to like 
just being big and shredded and strong doesn't mean you're going to be a great coach. Doesn't mean you have any legitimate knowledge. Correct. But it clearly makes the marketing side significantly easier. It makes getting people to trust you significantly easier. It removes a barrier. It's like, it's where, okay, well, I sort of want to look like that. Or for me, it was always one of the big things for me that drew a lot of clients to me was there's a really small guy who's not jacked, not huge, but like lean and outrageously strong, deadlifting 500 pounds, weighing 132 pounds. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. If I was just, if I just looked like I did without that level of strength, it wouldn't have been as enticing. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been like, okay, well, he just looks like a regular guy, a regular fit guy, mm -hmm. which is great. That's fantastic. And that works. But having the extra component on top of it, it reduces a barrier. It shows some level of understanding. And actually, this brings up a good point because I know a lot of coaches get mad at at people who might be shredded or big or, or strong or whatever it is. I'm like, well, they, they don't know anything though. It's like, but maybe they do. Yeah, you can be both. <laughs> you, like maybe it, this, I, <laughs> Twitter is such a great place for arguments. I just got in a big debate with someone on Twitter because we had differing opinions on something. And and she was like, well, I suggest you educate yourself. And I was like, well, how do you know I haven't educated myself? And she was like, because if you did, then you wouldn't think that. I was like, two people who are educated can have differing opinions on something. That's one of the great parts of, of, of education and having different opinions and living in a country that allows us to have freedom of thought and freedom of speech. But a lot of coaches, just because someone has a different opinion than you on something doesn't mean that they're uneducated and doesn't mean they're stupid and doesn't mean they can't help people. In the same way that just because you have a different opinion than someone else doesn't mean you're uneducated or you can't help people, right? So mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to look at a coach and, and look at what they do and say, well, that's so stupid. That's so dumb. Can't believe they're getting so many clients. Get out of that negative mindset. Get out of that like judgmental, like jealous mindset and just focus on what you can do rather than hating on what they're doing. Very well said. Number 10 on our list is warm up time is a, is a mistake that a lot of coaches make. Why, why is warm up time a mistake? Because I've, I've seen coaches who, who don't even know what a warm up is. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we could play this from both sides, right? We could, we could play it from the side of coaches literally not warming up at all. They'll, they'll do the, uh, 10 arm swings, <laughs> all right? They'll do yeah. the arm swings. They'll do the arm circles. They'll do the, the 10 squats. All right, let's go. And that's it. And I think that's a mistake. If your workout, if your warm up takes less than 60 seconds, odds are it wasn't really a good warm up. And on the other hand, I've seen coaches who literally the majority of the workout will be a warm up. Warm up will be 20. I remember, I'll never forget this. I heard someone say, can't make this up. I heard someone say that for whatever your age is, that should be the number of minutes your warm up is for your workout. So if you are 30 years old, your warm up should take 30 minutes. I'm like, you're out of your mind. If you think I'm going to take my 45 year old client and make them warm up for 45 minutes and then they have a 15 minute session, are you crazy? And what about people over 60? That's like, <laughs> it's exactly right. It's like you're at, you're crazy. So I think it plays on either end of the spectrum. I think a good warm up is generally, I think the shorter end being five minutes, the longer end being 15 minutes. That's really the range you should fall in. I think the vast majority of people, five to seven minutes, plenty. If you can't do your warm up in five to seven minutes for the vast majority of people, then I would look at what you're doing or, but yeah, that's just, that's basically what I would say. I see you're like, yep. No, no, I I was enjoying listening to that oh. because I actually I think you came in a little higher than I was expecting you to come in with your your preferred warm up time. Oh, you thought I would say lower than five to seven minutes? I thought you were going to say less than that. Yeah. No, I think I slack on my own personal warm ups, and I wouldn't call it slacking. This is where I think there is a decent amount of individual variation, mm -hmm. meaning personal preference with regards to how much they enjoy the process of warming up, personal preference with regard to uh, how often or infrequently someone might get hurt. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, th those two things especially. Because I think of myself first and foremost because every time I've ever like tweaked or dinged something up, it was on the back end of a, a rushed or limited warm up. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm... 
you know, do like a normal solid five to eight minute warm up, and then also, um, you know, maybe do a little bit of of like activation type work, meaning some pullovers before a, a push or a pull day, or like a set of pull ups mm-hmm. before bench press, um, and and actually take the time to do that, and or walk for a few minutes on the treadmill or do something just to get the blood pumping a little bit. I'm so much less likely to get hurt mm-hmm. and and in general more likely to have a good workout compared to and, and we've made jokes about this, but people who say like, you know, does a lion in the jungle need to warm up? No, it just goes and like <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, those I, those are two I've always found that the more mobile someone is, the more mobility and flexibility someone has, the less they need to warm up. That makes sense. The warm up generally I've found is George taking shots at my mobility over here. <laughs> no, but for me, my mobility is pretty good. It's, it's is elite. It's not elite, but it's pretty good. I'd say it's on the higher end. And that comes from years and years and years of whether it was doing gymnastics or wrestling or jujitsu, whatever it is. Like I've primed my body to be relatively mobile and flexible. Beginning to train with proper form at 14. Correct. Exactly. Whereas if you don't have a lot of mobility, the warmup is designed to give yourself enough mobility and then to then stabilize it within that mobility and then to go in the workout. Yes. So if you've already got the requisite mobility and you're still spending 20 minutes doing mobility you're wasting your time. If you already have the requisite mobility, the majority of your wor- warm up should be slight mobility stuff, m- mostly stability stuff to get make sure your glutes are firing, hamstrings are firing, uh, abs are working properly, your rhomboids are working well, like your your stabilizer muscles are working well, and then go into the to the workout. Um, I think that that's really what I've found is the the less mobile you are, the longer the warm up should be. The more mobile you are the shorter the warm up can be. And that's really the basic requisite factor. That's a good rule. That's a good like general takeaway from point number 10 there. Yeah. That's it. That's our that's our 10 most common 10 common mistakes that coaches are making. We hope you enjoyed episode 2 of this two-part series. Jordan, it was a pleasure talking to you as always. Likewise, my friend. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to join the mentorship, we'd love to have you. You can go to thefitnessbusinessmentorship.com. That's it, correct? Did I just mess that up? That's correct. That's correct. All right. Fitnessbusinessmentorship.com. You can uh, go over there, see what it's all about. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone.